Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Riley Snyder and assistant editor Michelle Rendells talk with Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson about his prostate cancer diagnosis. Frierson hopes to use his own experience to encourage men to prioritize regular screenings. After that, we have some highlights from our Indie Talks discussion this week about mining taxes in Nevada, which includes a lively discussion with experts on the topic. At the end of the show, I chat with our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, about what's going on in the nation's capital this week. Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2018. While he's kept it private for the past few years, the situation escalated recently, and this week he comes out publicly about his treatment to raise awareness about the prevalence of prostate cancer and the importance of getting regular cancer screenings. He missed a few days of the session this week to undergo a procedure at UCLA to remove the tumor. This interview took place before the procedure, but we can happily report that there was no complications and the speaker will know in the next 18 months if the procedure was successful in removing his cancer. Nevada Independent reporter Riley Snyder and assistant editor Michelle Rundells sat down with Frierson earlier this week to talk about his diagnosis. All right, so speaker, um, you have a, a diagnosis that you wanted to, to share with the world. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, what you've been through the last couple of weeks or months? Uh, years. Um, I uh, was diagnosed in October of 2018 with prostate cancer. And at the time it was low grade and, you know, there are different di- approaches and the approach was really active surveillance and watching it. But you can imagine, you know, the, the word cancer in and of itself will get your attention. I have a history in my family and I think being African-American at a greater risk, it was something that, you know, I took seriously. Uh, so I've been going back and forth to UCLA since then for periodic, you know, testing and surveillance. And in recent months, numbers just got significantly worse. And, you know, the, they felt like it was time to, 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 to get the tumor removed. Once I learned how treatable prostate cancer is in particular, that this was an opportunity to educate uh, men about, you know, how treatable this is if you pay attention and, and, and you know, monitor your own health. This is something that is, is treatable if you're paying attention and monitoring it and following directives. And in particular, not just men, but African-American men in particular who uh, are less prone to following advice and following up in that regard, that this was, you know, you know, time for me to, to use this as an opportunity to educate the public. And, I mean, was this found in a routine screening? Had you been more proactive because of your family history? No, I was actually probably just as stereotypical in that regard as a lot of men. But I have a, uh, a local doctor in Las Vegas that's, you know, you know, very attentive. And she saw it as a priority. And so we started, you know, some testing and, and you know, it was just caught in blood tests that there was something further to look at. And she sent me to, ultimately sent me to UCLA. And, and honestly, look, I, I was just as, as uh, dismissive, I think, as a lot of men initially. And that's kind of how I ended up at UCLA. Initially, it was active surveillance. Numbers are not great for my age. And, you know, there there is, I don't, I don't, I shouldn't sugarcoat it. There's, uh, after you, you know, you take a, a blood test and, and measure your, your, your PSA, that, that number is high, then they want to do biopsies. I would be lying if I said that was pleasant, and that's probably why a lot of men don't do it. But I'd had a uh, biopsy done, and the numbers were concerning enough that they wanted to do a follow-up, and I was not very assertive and 
quite frankly, excited at the notion of doing that again. But again, my doctor was pretty attentive and had me call UCLA just a few months ago. The numbers jumped significantly. So it was, you know, it, it, it was obviously a, a great thing that my doctor was so, so assertive about having me check it out. Without violating HIPAA. Can you tell us a little bit about the procedure you're going to be undergoing on Wednesday? Sure. UCLA has uh, several different approaches to treating localized uh, prostate cancer, and this is cryo like cryotherapy, essentially freezing the tumor out. So it's outpatient, has a great success rate based on their studies. I'm sure you've learned so much more about prostate cancer having gone through this. Recommendations for for other men, especially since you're, you know, right. folks that are younger and may not even be thinking about it. Well, I mean, look, I think first is, is you know, the blood test. You know, I, you know, I just think I would recommend that folks follow their doctor's advice when, you know, you, 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 you know, take a blood test and, and, and you have a, a PSA measure that gives them concern. Follow up, follow up with a prostate exam, follow up with whatever the doctors, you know, recommend. You know, for me at 50, I got like I got a six and eight year old. And at the end of the day, I want to be around. And so that was, I was like, you know, the rest of it doesn't matter that much. Of course, in, here in Nevada, down in Las Vegas, Leon Spinks just recently passed away, essentially from complications of prostate cancer, and no one should die from prostate cancer. It's just too treatable. What's it been like for your family? I mean, especially going back to 2018, when you first found out about this, to, to hear about that diagnosis. It, again, cancer runs in my family. My mother's a cancer survivor. My, my father passed away from cancer. It wasn't prostate cancer, but they were relieved that I cared and I was being attentive. And I think that at the end of the, end of the day is, is what matters. And uh, I think for something that is so treatable, it just doesn't make sense to let it get out of hand and not monitor it. You know, there are many men that die and after living a full life, they die having prostate cancer and not having ever known it. And so if you're monitoring it and you're one of those that has it, but it's not growing, then they'll just monitor it. But if it is growing, you won't know unless you are, are on top of it. And, and I think it's really, really important that, that folks, you know, remember whatever the discomfort or inconvenience of those tests, it's it's not worth letting it spread. And, you know, for them, they were relieved that, that I, I wanted to take care of it. And I think that's really the message for a lot of folks is, look, you got loved ones. I suppose it puts things in perspective, too, when everyone's asking about the bill deadline and how we're going to be here tonight. And then. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it does. It, it I, I think having been here for, for, for 10 years, you know, things that, you know, relatively newer folks think is an emergency. I was like, yeah, no, it was an emergency last session too. You know, we do the best that we can. The, the, the shutdown has really allowed me more time to focus and, you know, you know, obviously spending more time with family and with my kids, but you know, it, it's, you know, it, it, it you know, the, the, the word itself, you know, I would rather it be a lowercase cancer than an uppercase cancer. So it's early. And with most men, if you're monitoring it, it's, it's not typically an aggressive form of cancer. So it's, it, it's it's able to be monitored or or treated if it gets to that point, but you know obviously detection is key and and monitoring it in that regard. It's just so it's so easy that it's just you know it, it's it's not worth delaying it because you know it, it, if it did spread, then it's going to spread to other parts of your body that are going to be much less a much less able to be managed. And we were talking about this before we started recording. But do you plan to stay involved in committee hearings and the legislative process? Oh, absolutely. This is outpatient procedure. I, I plan on participating in committee the next day. My understanding from UCLA and their procedure is that, you know, it, it's about an 80% success rate in the first time and another 10%, they, you know, might just have a little bit left that they have to go get, go back and get out. So ultimately a, a 90% success rate over, over an 18 month period. I feel really good about that. You know, you, you talked about going to UCLA, you know, does Nevada not 
quite have the cutting edge stuff, you know, that maybe we hope someday we would have. Well, you know, I, I don't I don't really want to paint a picture that that was why I my doctor was trying to get my attention. And I think that was really largely it. Look, I, it, it was the diagnosis occurred in Nevada, um, in Las Vegas. And, you know, I, I think, again, the, my doctor was 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 really wanting me to take it serious and get my attention. And that's how I ended up there. It, it's a study you know, a research institution. I don't think that, that the procedures that they do there exist very many places in the world. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't compare Nevada to, 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 to UCLA in that regard. For me, and this, I think, experience, it was really more my doctor wanting, you know, me to take it serious. As a matter of fact, the doctor at UCLA initially said I was too young and that, you know, he, he actually literally said I'm pediatric in his line of work. And my doctor in Las Vegas asked me to call her back the next day and Within a week, UCLA said, yep, come on in. So I think it was really, for me, a function of having it delivered in a way that, that really got my attention. And you are, you have a bill draft request, or no, actually the bill dropped. It's both for prostate and ovarian cancer. Right. Any reason why it is going to be for both? Well, look, first of all, there are many, many forms of, of cancer that I think are, are, are worthy. I mean, we, we talk about breast cancer on a regular basis here because it was already acknowledged as ovarian and prostate cancer awareness month. I just thought it, it was just an opportunity to educate uh, the public about it. Obviously, there are different types of cancers. I think ovarian cancer doesn't really have screening. It, you know, it's not it's, it's not similar in a way that, that prostate cancer is, but, but because it was already recognized federally, any opportunity to educate the public on things that are treatable if, if paying attention, I think is just a worthwhile effort. Obviously, this is an incredibly private thing. You know, I, I think while running for public office subjects you to, you know, quite a bit more exposure, this is not one of those. I didn't have to share this. Uh, this was private. Naturally, me being gone occasionally would, would uh, have brought some attention, but I, I just felt compelled to make sure that if there's one person, especially after Leon Spinks passed away, if there's one person that will go get tested when they turn 50, or one person that'll follow up after they get a, you know, a, a PSA that's higher than it should be for the age, then it's well worth it. Just one. Anything else you can say about kind of what you've learned from this experience or maybe how your your life and perspective have sort of changed? Well, you know, it, it's always, you know, it's always tough when you're having to make a decision about, you know, I think for men, it's, it's frequently quality of life. And, you know, for a lot of men, some of the side effects make, make it to them, you know, not worthwhile. And it's so incredibly short-sighted. I mean, you know, my dad was given six months or so to live. He lived eight years. And so if, if you're paying attention and being attentive to your own health, you, you know, you're thinking about your own family and loved ones. And, you know, again, I got I got little kiddos that I still have a lot of work to do to make sure that they're productive citizens. And it, it, it's sobering. It, but no, it certainly puts everything in, in, into perspective. Look, I, I think that I have grown into this role by watching some of my members running around like the hair is on fire. And if I'm doing the same thing, then, you know, there's no sense of calm. There's no, no, no ability to reel that back in. So when it comes to something as serious as cancer, uh, I absolutely think that I need to be a leader and be an example. And, you know, I'm comfortable in that role. It, you know, I always joke, God gave me these broad shoulders for a reason, you know, but it's just important. It's just too incredibly important. And for me, one of those things that's preventable, it, 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 we're not just talking about, you know, smoking or, you know, it, we're talking about something that if you catch it early is entirely treatable. And it just makes no sense that so many let it go so far without without treating it. And so I'm here to 
to hopefully be, you know, I think uh, a spark to get people's attention and, 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 and make sure that they're, they don't put themselves at an unnecessary increased risk because of something that's entirely treatable. And again, the impact that it has on, on communities of color in particular, we're seeing, you know, that disparity in, in, in health care and, and, and quality of, of health exacerbated by COVID. And so more folks are, I think, likely to, to, to get COVID or to have complications from COVID because of, I think, you know, genetics and, and, and trends within different communities of color. And I just think it's something, you know, timely to, 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 to show folks that, you know, we've exposed these vulnerabilities and we need to take it seriously. And any message for the men out there that don't get their regular checkup? Or... Again, you know, it, it, there, there are worse things. I, I've, I've had several knee surgeries and shoulder surgeries and, you know, different procedures. And, and it, it's, 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 you know, a small window of, of inconvenience for something that's just incredibly important. And, you know, look, the, you know, the first, you know, for men in particular, you know, prostate exam is not a, a, a fun and pleasant thing. And then I remember that my wife had two children and I get over it. And so I, I think, you know, it, it's easy and it's not the same comparison, but, but when, you know, women have to go to the doctor annually for things that we could not even imagine. So I, I just think we need to get over it. There, there's, you know, if there was ever a, a modified or modern expression or, or definition of man up, this is it, man up. If you would like to listen to the full interview or read our story on Frierson, you can find those both on our website and the interview is also on our YouTube page. This week, we hosted a virtual panel discussion to debate mining taxes in Nevada. Should the industry pay more? Are they already paying enough? How should they be taxed, and what deductions should they be permitted to take? While this discussion is nothing new in Nevada, it has attracted more attention since lawmakers during the special session last year started the process of amending the state constitution to increase taxes on mining. The Nevada Independence environmental reporter Daniel Rothberg and editor John Ralston moderated a panel with former Legislative Council Bureau Director Lauren Malkowich, longtime mining lobbyist Jim Wanams, and Progressive Leadership Alliance of Nevada Executive Director Laura Martin. The panel touched on everything from how taxes on the mines actually work to the unique characteristics of the industry and much more. Here are a few of the highlights. In August, the legislators passed three resolutions in a special session that would increase how, how much the mining industry pays in taxes. Although lawmakers have not taken up the resolutions in this session, they are expected to weigh the proposals in the coming weeks. To amend the Constitution, the legislature must approve one or more of the resolutions again. Then they would go to a vote in the 2022 general election. All three resolutions are similar in that they kickstart the process of amending the Constitution, which caps the mining tax at 5% of net proceeds. Two of the resolutions remove a 5% cap on the net proceeds of minerals tax and replace it with a 7.75% tax rate on gross proceeds. That, according to some estimates, would raise about $541 million in revenue. The two resolutions differ in where portions of that revenue would go, while some portions would go back to the general fund. One resolution proposes passing along those revenues as a dividend to Nevada residents, similar to a program in Alaska. The other resolution would funnel a portion of that revenue toward education and healthcare. The third measure 
that lawmakers passed over the summer was characterized as an olive branch, the mining industry, a sort of compromise that raises the net proceeds tax cap to a maximum of 12%, but keeps the tax as a tax on net proceeds rather than gross proceeds. And that is estimated to generate less revenue, about $170 million. And I believe a portion of that revenue would go to the general fund and a portion would go to a county government's. I, I want to start with Mr. Wadhams, who I, I enjoyed the, his face when you said olive branch. I, I don't think he considered it such an olive branch, but let's just get right to the heart of the question here. I, and that is that, what is the argument for the mining industry, which has been protected in the constitution since 1864, well, essentially last hit for a real tax on itself more than 30 years ago, and whose major companies are doing uh, pretty well. What's the argument Mr. Wadhams, for why they should not pay more. This is an interesting, interesting cycle that comes up periodically. Let's just tax mining more. And generally, it's in absence of any large policy question about how do we approach taxation in Nevada. And so mining has to start from the position, generally speaking, of why are you starting with us? Why aren't we starting with something broad-based that will actually stabilize the economy going forward? As Governor Sisolak has said several times in the last few weeks, we can't do this again. And so that raises the question of why are we taxing mining? Just as you said, John, and oh, because they have money, what's the policy? Is that profitability? Is that revenues? Where's the larger discussion? So hopefully through the process of this legislative session, that opportunity will occur. I think it's particularly appropriate that that mining be part of that discussion, but to be the only topic of the discussion seems to be very untoward. I don't understand it. This is the same thing the gaming industry says whenever a gaming industry, again, a gaming tax is proposed. Oh, let's just tax everybody. As long as it's broad based, maybe we'll come, we'll come to the table. But mining is different than any other industry, as I pointed out, in, in that it has this unique protection in the Constitution. It has these deductions in statute. The gamers, I've always said, are jealous of the miners because of all those protections and deductions th that you have. And, and saying that you'll be part of the discussion is going to be broad-based. Listen, I've been, I haven't been quite been around for 40 years, but pretty close up there. And, and, and I've heard all of these so-called defenses before. The, the, the issue is, is why shouldn't the way mining is been taxed be changed, right? Well, I, that's clearly the question that's before the legislature and the question that you raise. And I guess my counterpoint to that is you start with certain assumptions that frankly are not true. You say that mining has been protected. I don't believe that's correct. And we have, I, we have a true constitutional scholar who can correct me if I'm wrong. But when the framers put the 1864, put the constitution together, they specifically included mining to be taxed specifically included it. And so it was not excluded. If they ran the state, why didn't they just simply exclude themselves? So mining has always been in there. Second point is many people refer to this 5% cap that's in the constitution. Amazing. It's in there for everybody. That was put in in 1937. It was amended to the constitution to protect all property owners from being taxed at more than 5%. So the 5% and mining being in the Constitution doesn't suggest that, it suggests that they've been protected at all. They've been fully exposed. The legislature has placed payroll tax on them, commerce tax on them, sales and use tax on them, to suggest property tax generally on them to suggest that they're protected. 
they don't even have an exemption. Retail does on their inventories. Bankers have on their securities and their accounts. Those are exemptions. So protection is a false premise. You got to start with recognizing what's actually in the Constitution. Well, I want, I want to give Laura an opportunity to respond to, to that. You know, I mean, what would your sort of policy basis for, you know, plan has been pushing for for this mining tax sort of, you know, le- legislation, constitutional amendment around mining tax for a long time? What What is the policy rationale for that? And what, what do you make of the, the claim that mining has has not been protected in the way that sort of John laid out? Well, they have been protected and they've seen to it that they will continue to be protected. I think the policy rationale is recognizing the imbalance of power between people and corporations that operate in the state. And I think the number one offender is the hard rock mining industry. I mean, we can argue about what is a fair share, should they pay more? But I think we can all agree they can start by paying what they owe. The mining industry does pay some taxes that other businesses pay, but that doesn't equal actual dollars when they're allowed to take numerous deductions that other businesses, especially small businesses who could really use it now, are not able to take. And so there are no caps on marijuana taxes. There are no caps on tobacco, you know, two industries that pay more in taxes than the mining industry. There are no caps on how much you can cut from education or cut from healthcare. And when we allow that kind of policy debate where we have to protect mining at all costs, excuse me, we have to protect mining's profits at all costs, even if that means we cut victory funding for schools or we have no strong healthcare network in the rural counties. That is the choice that the mining industry forces every Nevadan to make every legislative session. And the policy discussion is how Nevadans are no longer going to stand up for that. You know, I, I the mining industry, as you mentioned, will, will argue that you know, when, when you put together all, it's not just this net proceeds of minerals tax, they also pay property tax and modified business tax and, and these other taxes. And when you put that together, it looks a lot more like what the gaming industry might pay or what other sort of big corporations might pay in total. You know, you know why is that not, from, from your perspective, why is that not the case? What, what, what about that argument do you disagree with? Does the gaming industry get to deduct the cost of travel within Nevada from their taxes? so they can pay less. I mean, the mining industry does. If anything, the gaming industry should be standing with us and pointing out that these deductions are not equitable across all businesses. So why does mining allow, is, why is the mining industry allowed to single itself out and take these really generous deductions? And I want people to know who, who's watching this, it's not just about what the mining industry doesn't pay by you know, eating up all these deductions. We have to compensate for that. So when we're losing out on revenue that is owed to the state, we have to make up for it in other ways. And like we saw this summer, and I hope we don't see this session, we make up for it by hurting public education and healthcare and other public social services. I, 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 think, I think there's some important points that are being brought up that, <clears throat> that really need to be evaluated. Ga- gaming pays property tax. They pay sales tax on the equipment they buy. What they pay that's unique, unique across all industries, is they pay a transactional tax on, on the gambling win, not on the gambling handle, not on the revenue, but on the gambling win. So that's a net tax. And I'm not suggesting that change. That was a deal that was made when we legalized gambling in 1931. Fair deal. No other industries pays a gaming tax except gaming, right? 
and no other industry pays an alcohol tax except alcohol purveyors. No one pays a cannabis tax except cannabis industry. So to identify particular transactional type taxes and suggest that an industry that doesn't sell alcohol, doesn't sell cannabis, and doesn't have gambling enterprise should pay those taxes just simply doesn't make sense. When you compare the taxes that are paid by industries, you need to compare them all. In fact, you could look at, for example, the taxes, total taxes paid as a percentage of employees. The two highest in the state by far are gaming and mining. So where, where is the discrepancy that somehow mining is escaping? The other point that was raised is deductions. All of that suggests an existence of an income tax. Nevada has no income tax in the state. We could have a business income tax, but we don't. So if we want to start talking about profits and taxation on profits, we should talk about adopting a business income tax. The tax on minerals is a property tax. The state Supreme Court has determined that many times over the course of the last 50 to 100 years. It is a property tax. It's not an income tax. So like many other property taxes, the valuation of property is based upon deductions for operating costs and the like. Appraisers do that every day when they evaluate property. So this is not unusual. It is not unique and is not something that should be set aside. It is simple appraisal methods. When do you typically see these proposals to change how mining is taxed? You know, in, in what types of sessions do you typically see this come up? When we're out of money, that's simple. I mean, in Governor Miller, in his first term as governor before he was twice elected, was looking for more money. He had several programs he wanted to enact. One of the things that was done in addition to increasing it was to accelerate the payment of the net proceeds tax. To move that forward a year, that continued for a couple of years. 2009 comes around and we are in a situation very similar to what we were in this past year where we had huge economic problems. Between 2009 and about 2016, mining again prepaid the net proceeds tax. And that was when there was a big, big discussion. 2011 and 2013 proposed constitutional amendment that failed in 2014. And uh, now with the economy hurting again, the idea of turning to another revenue source comes up. Prepayment is particularly a good idea in a time like this when you have reason to believe that the economy will bounce back in a couple of years. So prepaying the net proceeds taxes was an easy decision, I think, for the legislature and mining during the special sessions of summer. We talk about taxing mining every year, not just when we're in a down year. I think it's something that has needed to be fixed, you know, since since the, the, you know, the signing of our constitution. And I do want to keep impressing on this point, you know, we can, we can have like a long answer and talk about different businesses and different taxes, but the point is it doesn't equal real dollars. In 2019, the mining industry helped itself to $5 billion in deductions. If there's any small businesses listening, even small businesses that you're, it's tied to the mining industry, you get to deduct the cost of transportation, the cost of processing and your sales, cost of delivery, cost of uh, maintenance, depreciation of capital, industrial insurance, and healthcare. We are paying for their healthcare, unemployment, cost of travel in Nevada, cost of corporate services, cost of development necessary for the mine, cleanup cost, royalties paid if on a lease. So I know a lot of my friends from, you know, John's favorite group DSA is listening. 
I want to repeat that. We are paying for their health care. We are giving them paid health care. So any businesses who think that, you know, if it's mining, it'll be all of us. No, we're really looking at just mining because I don't think any other business gets to enjoy so many deductions that you basically save $5 billion in those deductions from the taxes that you owe the state. Where do you see this debate going? You know, the legislature doesn't, we're about a third, I think maybe a, more than a third of a way into the session and this really hasn't come up yet. I mean, where do, you, where do you see this debate going? We shouldn't have the biggest gold mines and the most underfunded schools in the country. That shouldn't be allowed to happen. And so those are the discussions that we wanna have. We, we, we are coming at this as if it's inevitable. People are truly fed up. You know, during the uh, pandemic, which is a year now that Governor Sisolak had to make that really hard decision to close non-essential businesses. You know, Nevadans had to dig deep. They turned their garages into food pantries. They gave rides to people. They, you know, they helped any way that they could. And all we're asking is that the mining industry do the same thing, dig deep and help us come up with a solution. And a solution isn't, it can't just be us or we're leaving. The solution is we have to take a look at who is getting, I don't want to say getting away, but who is really has these privileges that allows people to pocket money while our public services hurt. You know, I, in the beginning, before the session started, Senator Gorkachia said something that caught me in the Uncle Daily Free Press. He, he said that, you know, despite the resolutions, he, he didn't believe that the cap was going to be changed, but that the mining industry would have to potentially give up something. I mean, Jim, do you, do you think that there's, there is room for some sort of compromise here? Let me make sure that, that I'm crystal clear. I, I am not suggesting that mining cannot pay more. I think they can. That's not the issue. The issue is doing it in a rational process so that there is some balance as opposed to just simply punishment. And, and unfortunately, we tend to isolate small numbers, which are just a portion of what mining pays. If you look at the array of industry by sector and what they pay in taxes, mining pays hundreds of millions of dollars. They are the second largest property taxpayer behind MGM Grand Resorts. And and all of that gets forgotten because we just focus on one small element of what they pay. And I guess that's the point. It's not that mining can't pay more. Those discussions, as I understand it, are continuing to go on with leadership. The point is, I think that policy, the state should be looking at broader policy. Our property tax system is a disgrace. Our property tax system, and, and largely that's because of what the legislature did in 1979 and 1981, and that was even before John was around and probably before Lauren was around. But we shifted, we shifted local government off of a property tax base, and we adopted a sales tax base. Sales tax is volatile, which brings back a point that was made, I think, Daniel, by you. A commodity price is volatile. We don't want to make the economy more volatile. We want to make it more stable. And I agree with Laura, we need to fund schools, but we need to do it in a way that's stable, not one that's based upon a commodity price. So I think the opportunity in this legislative session is there. Plus, as everybody knows, we, we, we appear to be the beneficiary of some federal money. And hopefully that will, that will enhance the opportunity to fulfill the promise of uh, funding education, as well as other services that were cut during special session. But by no means should anybody feel like they're safe from that. We ought to be looking at making the state as stable for long-term as possible. And mining should be part of that conversation. And as I understand it, they are. 
If you would like to watch the entire mining tax panel, you can do so on our YouTube channel. And if you want to read it, we also have a brief write-up on the discussion on our website. All right, and so we are here for the DC debrief with our man in DC, Humberto Sanchez. Humberto, how's it going? It's going well. It's a little rainy here this week, but we're doing well. I like that we always start with the weather. I like informing you about Reno's weather as well. It's very windy today. <laughs> so what is going on in the in, in rainy DC this week? There's a flurry of activity in the House. Uh, the big bill that they're doing, there are two immigration bills they're doing this week. Uh, one's called the American Dream and Promise Act. And that, that's a big deal because it's essentially the Dream Act and with some other things thrown in. It would essentially help the 12,000 DACA recipients in Nevada and 4,000 TPS to, uh, recipients in Nevada. That's the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals DACA, the program that shielded folks from being from deportation if they arrived in the country, if they were brought by their parents and they were underage. And then the TPS program, obviously the temporary protected status. And uh, that's for people who are fleeing conflict or natural disasters who get uh, asylum here in the, in the United States. And there are about 4,000 of those folks in Nevada as well. So for Dreamers, they, they'd have to be here since they were 18 years old or younger. And they would have to have been in the country continuously since as of January 21st of this year. And so they would be eligible if they were meet those criteria and several other criteria as well to apply for a 10-year conditional status. But they could apply for green cards actually sooner if they go to a, a they get a college degree if they complete uh, two years of post-secondary education, they serve in the military for two years, or if they've had employment for three years. And as, as permanent residents, they would be able to apply for, for citizenship after five years, just like any other green card holder. So this is definitely puts them on a path to citizenship that, that they've been looking for. And, that, and they're a celebrated group, right? Because they go to school and they're young people and they're, they've been very attractive politically, I, I guess is another way to put it. And, and this would help them. And again, there's 12,000 of them in Nevada, which is, which is a, you know, a lot of people. Yeah. And if you're a TPS holder, you would automatically be able to apply for a green card because those people have been here, have been here for a, quite a long time. I know some of the folks from Nevada who, who come here every year to, to petition the government on, on behalf of their status. Uh, the, some of those folks have been here for 20 years. They have kids, they have grandkids. So they'd be, they'd be eligible to apply immediately for a green card. And after five years, like anybody else, they'd be able to apply for citizenship. So that's a, that's a big deal. And I think nationally, that's 2.3 million dreamers who would be able to apply for this stuff. So it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. And the House passed it in 2019 on mostly party line votes. And back then, Mark Amadei, our Republican member, opposed it. Just He's very supportive of the dreamers and of the, top, of the TBS folks. He just didn't like a lot of the other things that were put in the bill. There's a lot of conditions that he thinks could let people who are who don't deserve to come, like people who are, commit crimes, that kind of thing. And so he's very concerned about that. And that's one of the reasons why he didn't support it last year. I don't expect him to support it this year. I talked to him about what was coming up last week. I haven't talked to him yet about this particular bill since it's going to be voted on later today. We're recording this Thursday. So he told me if Democrats don't allow for any kind of input in the process, which which I, I would say that he would think that they have not, that he would unlikely, he'd be not likely to support the bill. So we don't expect him to support it, but uh, we'll see what, what that, what how it comes out. The other immigration bill that they have coming up is for farm workers. That's also going to be voted on today. And the bill would allow hundreds of thousands of immigrant farm workers uh, to apply for, for temporary and 
renewal immigration status, if they've worked at least 180 days during the last two-year period, and then uh, workers would be allowed to request green cards if they complete four or eight years of additional agricultural work. So that's another big deal. They're doing both these bills, and immigration is a big agenda item for Democrats this year. And there's talk about you know whether they can do a, a big bill together. They're doing parts here and there, and we're going to see a lot of action on immigration, but it, it's really unclear whether anything will happen on it because the Senate, and you'll still need t- 10 Republicans to go along with you. This will likely pass with mostly Democratic votes. It's unclear what the support will be like in the Senate for this bill. And so expect folks to, again, a lot of a lot of running to stay in place. Yeah. All right. Well, Humberto, is there anything else coming out of D.C. this week or? That's pretty much it for the for the most part. There's there's other bills that are that the House are doing that will go to the Senate. One is the Violence Against Women Act, which is a basically a domestic violence bill that, that strengthens the laws that are on the books now and enhances them. So as it's proposed by the House, which was which was passed by the House this week, if you have misdemeanor stalking or domestic abuse convictions, you can't buy a gun, and that's a that's a big deal for the NRA who doesn't support the bill for that reason. And also some Republicans also. And Mark Amade voted against it. I haven't talked to him about his reasoning, but he voted against it in 2019 because he, again, he thinks a lot of other extraneous things were loaded on. And he's very, he's very pro Second Amendment. And he, he doesn't like curtailing people's rights in any way in that regard. And so he's he voted against that. So we're going to talk to him to see how why, his rationale. But but again, he voted against it in 2019, and we'll find out why he did. But again, it's been a very busy week with. The, uh, again, violence against women and the two immigration bills and some other things. And uh, so we'll see what happens in the Senate. And we're looking forward to what happens next week, too. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, Humberto, thank you so much for giving us a little debrief on what's going on in the nation's capital. My pleasure, man. Anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Jason Frierson, Riley Snyder, Michelle Rendells, Daniel Rothberg, John Ralston, Lauren Malkowicz, Jim Wadhams, Laura Martin, and Humberto Sanchez for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, we're on every platform. Also, share the show with a friend or on social media. It helps the show grow so we can continue to bring you fantastic interviews and updates every week. Email us with questions, comments, concerns, praise, movie suggestions, exercise tips, or whatever else is on your mind. You can reach me at joey at thenvindy.com, and Jacob is at jacob at thenvindy.com. Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode by our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.